Hello and welcome to Ascent Dental Radio, a program dedicated to the balance between the clinical aspect of healthcare and the business of healthcare. And now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Coughlin. Good evening. This is Dr. Kevin Coughlin from Ascent Dental Solutions with a focus on knowledge, education, training, and development. I want to thank our sponsors, Henry Schein, Patterson Dental, for their support. Without that support, these podcasts would be difficult. I also like to give a shout out to Mr. David Wolf and his podcast team that puts a professional spin to these podcasts. As you know, I've been doing well over 200 of these podcasts, and tonight I think we're in for a real treat. We have Dr. Thomas Ornt, who has been a practicing dentist and, in my opinion, a leader in the business of dentistry, the coaching of dentistry, to, to make our profession better, not just for our patients, but for ourselves. I can't thank you, doctor, so much for just spending the time. I know you're busy. I know you're in demand. And I want to thank you for taking time to speak with me. Give us a little bit of an introduction and background for probably a handful of people who haven't heard you speak or aren't knowledgeable in your expertise. Let's hear it for Dr. Orrin. Tom, thanks again. Give us a background and how you got started and how you've been helping our profession. First of all, Kevin, thank you so much for the opportunity to uh, share my gems with your your folks. Really appreciate that. Yeah, a little bit about me. I'm a general dentist. I practiced for 22 years. If you ask me, you know, what were my favorite things? My favorite things were TMJ, occlusion, bonded porcelain reconstruction, did a lot of aesthetic, appearance-related dentistry. So th- those were my passions. The first 15 years of practice, my focus was, as I think a lot of dentists, clinical dentistry, become a better clinical dentist. And I had my head in the sand when it came to the business of the practice. Of course, they don't teach as much in dental school and they don't teach that much on the way out. And so 27 years ago, I found myself three days from losing my house and my office. I was um, sitting in the office of a bankruptcy attorney in Boston on a Friday afternoon. It was pouring rain. It was a miserable day for a lot of reasons. And um, he looked at my books for 10 minutes which I thought was interesting because it was $300 for 10 minutes, so it was $30 a minute. That's better than Molarendo. Anyway, so he looked for 10 minutes and he said, well, he said, I'll meet you at nine o'clock on Monday morning in court. Uh, He said, we'll file bankruptcy for you on Monday. All right. So Saturday, my divorce attorney called because he was the one who had sent me to the bankruptcy guy, the, the bankruptcy shark. And my divorce attorney says, you can't file Monday. I said, you sent me there. I, he said, I know. He says, but everything's changed. I said, what could change in 24 hours? He said, a lot. He said, uh, I told your your ex-wife, now my ex-wife, I told her, that, you know, your, your attorney, her attorney that we're filing on Monday. And she said, that's fine. We'll meet you in family court on Tuesday and we'll dissolve his practice and his house. So that was a bad idea. So I, that was off the table. And now I was left with a couple million dollars in debt, being embezzled by my office manager, divorced by my wife bankruptcy off the table. And now I had to sit down and do what we were not ever taught, which is how do you figure out the business of dentistry? And so it took a couple of years. One of the things I was determined to do was to get out from under the thumb of the PPOs. So it wasn't quick. It wasn't fast. In fact, my recommendation for any dentist out there who is in a lot of PPOs is the last thing you should do is leave PPOs. Now, I know a lot of people say, well, wait a minute, Tom, I thought you're all about leaving the PPOs. And yeah, but I would write it down if you get a pen. And that is the last thing I would ever recommend is leaving PPOs. Now, that doesn't mean you shouldn't leave them. It just means it's the last thing in the sequence of events. And we'll talk more about that tonight. So 
Fast forward a little bit. It took me a couple of years. One of the things that's, that's paramount before you begin leaving PPOs is that you increase your new patient flow, you increase your recall retention, you increase patient case acceptance, you bump your practice up, and it's going to be different for every practice. It might be a hundred or $200,000 for one practice. It might be, I don't know, a quarter million for another. But you, you put yourself in a financial position where you can begin to safely and predictably leave the PPOs. And even at that, when you begin that exodus, it's got to be done right. You don't want to just, oh yeah, pull the plug. I see that so often, Kevin. I'm sure you've seen the same thing. They get frustrated. They get emotional about it. And so they make an emotional decision. They just pull the plug with no plan. And that can be pretty catastrophic. Anyway, fast forward a little bit. Uh, about two, two and a half years later, I was 100% fee for service and doing fine, doing well. Uh, unfortunately, at about that time, and this is about, I don't know, 20, 22 years ago, somewhere in there, probably actually about 24 years ago, my dad was diagnosed with terminal cancer right out of the blue. He, he was healthy until the day he was diagnosed, six months to live. He wasn't a dentist, but he had a dental practice, and his practice was way bigger than mine. Mine was four chairs, kind of a nice, quiet, suburban um not upscale, but but I did a lot of reconstruction and, and, and aesthetic dentistry. His was more of a PPO mill. He had 11 chairs. He was in a strip mall in a very depressed area in Worcester, Massachusetts. He had every PPO you could imagine. Yeah, he had 15 different plans um, and he was dying. And he had never told me how stressed he was. Again, Dennis and Kevin, I'm preaching to the choir here, but you know this, but a lot of dentists are under such stress and pressure from overhead from new staff rising costs from what it costs today after covid just to get supply dental supplies and anyway so he was pretty stressed out and he said i never told you any of this he said but i'm dying and i, I got to share this with you he said i don't have any retirement i canceled my life insurance three years ago my wife and i would have paid the premiums had we known that but he never told us so um anyway he was in in debt and he said, I want you to take the practice over and uh, do what you did for your practice and see if you can help your mom. And, and I promised him, of course, we would help her out either way. But but to honor his wish, we didn't, we could have just closed the practice. To honor his wish, Elizabeth, my wife, and I went out to that practice and and took it over and, and started to do out there in Worcester what we did in Framingham. What I thought was really telling was so much, and again, I'm preaching to the choir, but so much of it was mindset. We got out there and they basically said, oh, Dr. Arndt, you know, this is very different than your Framingham office. We're in Worcester. We're in a very depressed area. We have all the PPOs and every dentist takes PPOs and all the patients, that's all they care about is their insurance. So all of the, I won't call them false beliefs, but they're kind of misguided beliefs. All false beliefs are based in some level of truth, kind of like rumors or maybe maybe a little bit of, little bit of truth there, a little kernel. Anyway, what they didn't know was that 15 years before the day my dad died, I practiced in Worcester in his office for about a month and a half, one day a week. And the reason I was out there doing that was, you know, back that back in the day, back then, he had a couple of his GPs. He had, you know, multiple GPs, a couple of specialists and a pretty big support team. And a couple of his GPs were really, really ill for quite some time. And um, he called me up one day and he said, we're really hurting for production. Would you mind coming out here and just, you know, doing a day of production a week? I said, sure. So I, I went out there and, um, it kind of reminded me of dental school because I had to, I knew that they wouldn't have anything I needed. So I had to pack that old tackle box and dust it off the old tackle box, put the different things in that I would need to do, you know, bonded porcelain restorations and TMJ and occlusion and all the things that, that I was doing in Framingham. Got out there. This is this is 15 years before he passed away. And on my first day to give him some help, 
the dental assistants looked at me during the, the morning huddle. This is like 10 minutes before the first patient. And they said, Dr. Arndt, nice to meet you. I said, nice to meet you. They said, your dad's told us all about the dentistry that you do in Framingham. Now, Kevin, I'm sure you know, and, and for the women who are listening to this, I'm sure you guys know that there's, there's a, a well-known proverb that says, when a woman speaks and a guy hears, the guy has no clue what the woman's actually saying. He may think he does, but he has no clue what she's really saying. So I'm thinking she's complimenting me. You know, your dad's told us all about the, the work that you do in Framingham. And I'm thinking, oh, I said, thank you very much. She, she looked at me like, why are you thanking me? She said, don't thank me. She said, that isn't going to work here. And this is 10 minutes before my first patient. She, so now I felt, if there were an analogy, I felt like I was in the mountains that we were going to siege and seize. And there was supposed to be air support and also ships across over the edge of the, the mountain where it hits the sea. And the ships had turned away and the air support went back. And there we were in the mountains all alone. And 10 minutes, okay. So I started treating the patients. Middle of that morning, um, one of the first patients I saw for an exam was a young man. And just as that dental assistant had told me, he worked for one of the three factories in town. He was wearing blue coveralls with yellow stitching on his on his uh, jersey with his name on it. And he had terrible insurance. But that's where the similarity of what she said, that's where it divided because she had told me because of their insurance, because of their attitude, because of who they are, they'll never accept, you know, quality care or long-term care and so forth. So I just did what I knew how to do, which was just told him about what he needed and why he needed it and what the potential consequences of not taking action now. And it, again, if, if you're writing anything down, we tell patients what we see, and that would be the diagnosis. And now these are asymptomatic patients. Obviously, somebody comes in with a fractured number nine that's bleeding from the pulp it's pretty difficult for them to re refuse treatment. They're just hoping you can help them out. But for the majority of patients in a general practice, they're asymptomatic. And so they sit there in our chair thinking, I hope he doesn't say I need a bunch of work because I'm sure everything is just fine. My last dentist told me it was just fine. I'm sure it's all fine. Meanwhile, you look in their mouth and there's all sorts of stuff going on. Anyway, so write this down. We tell them what we see, that's the diagnosis. And we tell them what we would recommend, which is their treatment plan. And when we do that, we short circuit the entire sales process because we miss the most important part. The most important part is telling them about the potential consequences of not taking action. So we got diagnosis. That's fine. Tell them the diagnosis, but then talk to them about the potential consequences of here's what we know to happen. Now, we don't know if it's going to be tomorrow, or if it's going to be in a week or in a month. We can't tell you the exact timeline, but we know what happens if we don't take care of this, and if we don't take care of it now, here's the possible consequences. That's actually the most important part of the case presentation in order to get better acceptance. There's a lot of, obviously, a lot of, a lot of other pieces there. So that day, I saw that young man. That was my first day out there actually practicing, helped my dad out for about a month of, of Wednesdays. And um, I told that young man that uh, my recommendation would be the upper right quadrant that we do uh, inlays, onlays, crowns. It was basically four teeth of, of crown and bridge. And only a, you know, a tiny piece of that would be covered by his insurance. And um, he looked at me, and the first thing he said was, Dr. Arndt, nobody ever told me it could be done that way, which was really sad. Nobody had ever talked to him about complete dentistry, not once. And then he said, well, let's do it. And so we worked it out, and he worked it out with the, the folks in the office, and, and he ended up doing that quadrant. That wasn't the first quadrant of prosthetic dentistry that I did. Not much of that got... When I went back to my office and then my dad's other dentist came back in, not much changed for the next X number of years. 
But then when Elizabeth and I went out there, we had the opportunity to really have a, a much longer term effect out there. So turn that practice around. We did not go 100% fee for service on purpose. We removed 13 of his 15 plans in about two years. Again, first we raised, you know, not raised the prices, but raised the acceptance of care. So we got more better care accepted. That's probably a bad grammar, but got more better care accepted. And we increased the new patient flow, increased recall retention, saw the numbers going significantly up. And then we were confident we could begin to chip away at the PPOs, developed a strategy for how do you talk to the patients to get maximum retention of those patients when you do transition, because you're going to lose patients, obviously. But you can keep a much higher number than most dentists realize if you do it right. And we, we went about 90% fee-for-service. So those, my main, the framing in practice was 100% fee-for-service. The other one was about 90, 90% fee-for-service. That was a number of years back. Uh, for the last 23 years, I've been just helping other dentists with this process. So that's, that's in, in a bullet or a nutshell, that's where I've been. Well, I could tell you this. The people who are listening are almost all dentists, physicians, and a background in dentistry. And what I think they're, they're striving for is they're looking for help. They they realize that their acumen for business may not be as strong as it could be. And they're looking towards experts like yourself to say, as they call you the gem guy, what are some of those take-home points that our listeners can say Monday, they're going to call you, they may ask you for help and your expertise. But for a take-home, it slowly and methodically and correctly reduce these PPOs and slowly and methodically make sure your team understands the process. That process, if I understand it, is not just making the diagnosis and the treatment plan, but the consequences of not following those plans. Are there any other gems that you would recommend to our listeners when we want to say, Let's focus in on new patients. How do we get these new patients? Where do they come from? Is there some kind of formula or plan that you say X amount of dollars should be devoted to this kind of marketing, that kind of marketing? How important, in your opinion, is uh, social media? And what are your recommendations? <laughs> I love it. And we need half to two minutes to get it across. Okay, tell you what. I love the I love the question, and I will I will, I'll answer it right now. I know we're planning on doing another podcast, and I think on that next podcast. So in this one, we'll I'll, I'll wrap this one up with exactly what you just asked: social media versus traditional marketing versus how much would the budget be, and so forth. So we're going to hit all of those on the next one. Now that we've got the new patients flowing in, let's talk about maximum retention of those new patients. Fair enough. Well, I think, as I state, it doesn't matter how many come in, it's how many you keep. And if you're not tracking how they're leaving, why they're leaving, then I think you're missing a tremendous opportunity to judge yourself, your team, and uh, your organization. It's sometimes a tough report card, but at the end of the day, I want to know why they left and what we did wrong to create that uh, negative result. 100% agree. So... What I'd like to do, and do give me a ballpark. How much time would you like to spend on this piece now? Well, in my opinion, I think we sort of, in this first podcast, you've sort of touched base on your feelings and recommendations for PPOs, and you went into some detail about that. And the next one, we were sort of going to move into new patients. How do we get them? 
how do we keep them, et cetera, et cetera. So to summarize the PPOs, I'd just like to get your opinion because with the MSOs and BSOs that appear to be expanding in our profession, I often say to clients, myself, my own opinion, is that it depends a lot on the doctor's strategy. If your goal is to just have a high-end private practice with perhaps one or two associates in one or two locations, your strategy basically is to practice in that manner with those results. I think there's a group of perhaps younger dentists and perhaps dentists in my age, I'm going to be 65 next month, that are looking for an exit strategy. And they're saying to themselves, these MSOs and DSOs are looking for a footprint. They're looking for a strategy and a, 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 a market share to expand their own personal wants and needs, which in my personal opinion is, can I get the most money, quadruple my EBITDA, and that venture capital group is out of the game and another group picks it up. So depending on what that dentist is trying to accomplish, in my opinion, they sort of fall into that two groups. One that's a really honed in, really ideal practice, perhaps even an ideal lifestyle, and their number one focus is making that practice as successful as possible. There's another group of dentists, at least that uh, I see and consult because of my background, that are saying, hey, how can I get 50 practices in the next 50 days? Because my only goal is I want to sell it and I want to make an oodle amount of money and uh, it'll be somebody else's problem down the road. Maybe you can address that as we close up on this uh, particular podcast. I would love to. I come with a particular bias. Many years ago, I reached out to Pete Dawson and I said, Pete, would you write the forward to one of my books? And he said, and I quote, Tom, I've turned down so many requests of people asking me to do forwards. So I thought he was saying no. And uh, he said, and this was all handwritten in a note back to me. He said, I'm going to write your forward. And he said, the reason is because I believe that you'll be a good missionary to carry the torch that I've started, which is helping dentists understand the need for complete dentistry. And um, that's been, that was always my mission before he said that. And he knew that that's what I did. Pete actually said something funny to me one day. He said, you know, you're an odd, odd mix. I said, why is that Pete? He said, well, I was accredited by the ACD, the American Academy of Cosmetic Dentistry. I was an examiner for six years for the ACD. So that was kind of one side of me. He said, but you're the first person I've met from the AACD who cares what happens after the teeth meet. <laughs> so I, I thought that was kind of funny. But, but the point is, you can't practice the best possible quality, long-term best health care, patient's number one, your number one priority being the patient's health and best interest. That and how many multiples of EBITDA you can get and how many, how many um, offices you can churn in a fast enough time for the VCs to come and take it, those two are mutually exclusive. And uh, I'm going to wrap up with an interesting story about one of my members who didn't realize that. He was on Cape Cod, Massachusetts. I won't use a name, but he was a nice guy and a good dentist. And he had a heart of gold, but he didn't realize what happens when you sold. So some DSOs, and I'm sure there's some really good ones. But in some cases, what you were talking about is also the case. Anyway, he sold to the DSO, but he lived in the community. So he retired in the same community where the patients he had seen for most of his life were living. 
And it became just treacherous, just even seeing these people every day in the community. He ended up buying the practice back from the DSO at a huge loss. He lost a lot of money. Obviously, they're not going to just give it back to him for what he, what, he, what he got. So at huge expense out of his retirement pocket, he bought the practice back. So again, when you ask me the question of, you know, what's my feeling on those two different directions that people can take? And you're right. It's not necessarily age related. There are some younger practitioners whose sole, practice, sole focus is, what's the very best I can do for my patient's health? And then build a nice practice and a nice life for myself out of that, maybe with a couple practices like that. And there are others who they want to treat this solely as a business and you know make as much money as possible. And by the way, I'm a big promoter, proponent of a dentist should be able to make as much money as they want, as long as they're doing quality dentistry. And when they're growing, as long as the dentists who they're hiring are doing quality dentistry, this is one of the, and I hope I have another few seconds here, because this is one of the issues I had with my father's office. The day that we took it over, we sat down with each department. We sat down with the assistants. We sat down with the hygienist. We sat down with the bookkeeper. So this is on day one. I call this my negative inheritance. On day one, Lisa, the bookkeeper, said, your dad was a sweetheart, but he's been sick for a bit, and he was kind of behind on the daily bills, and we're going to get shut down if we don't pay the lab and pay the suppliers and whatever. I said, well, he had mentioned that he thought he was probably behind. He didn't know how much he was. I said, Elizabeth has her checkbook. And she, she held up her little personal checkbook. And I said, Elizabeth has her checkbook with, with her. If you could just total up, tally up what he owes, we'll be happy to write you a check and catch you up to zero so we can start even. She said, Dr. Oren, I need you to write me a check today for $100,000. So he was, he was behind $100,000. So Elizabeth wrote a check for $100,000 and handed it to her and she paid the bills. But then when we met with the dental assistants, the dental assistant said, your dad was a sweetheart and we loved him to death, but he wasn't a dentist. He was a businessman owner of that practice. She said, he didn't understand. We couldn't talk about dentistry. I said, what's wrong? She said, well, two out of the three GPs are committing malpractice knowingly on a daily basis. I, I was pretty taken aback. I didn't think that was even possible that they would do that. So I said, you, know, you have proof of this? They said, yeah, we'll show you the records. And so they brought us you know, 10, 20 records and started walking through the records with us. And, and they were right. They knew what was going on. And anyway, so again, when you ask me that question, it's kind of loaded for me to, to me to, for me to be asked that question because my bias is that it's okay to have one practice. It's okay to have 100 practices, but only if we still keep the patient as our number one priority and make sure that good dentistry is being done for your patients. And that can be done in either situation. I think that's a, a terrific message to our listeners. If you don't mind, I know you do consulting. I know you've written books. I know you're well known for an excellent reputation, not just as a business person, but as a dentist. How can people reach out and say, look at Tom, I need your expertise. I need your experience. Is there a, a, a simple way, a website, a phone number? How can our listeners uh, reach out to you so that they may get a little bit more of your expertise and background? I, I appreciate that. So if your listeners would like to safely reduce dependence on PPOs, which is a lot of what we talked about tonight, they can download my free special report. It's called a four-step system that dentists use to safely and predictably withdraw from PPOs and increase their net profit. That's at PPOFO. That's P-P-O-F-O-E, PPOFO.com. And um, they also, if they'd like our help mapping out a step-by-step -step plan specific to their sp situation, specific to their practice on how to reduce PPOs, then I would su suggest scheduling a free breakthrough call with my team. The free breakthrough call is at PPO Exit. That's P-P-O-E-X-I-T, P-P-O Exit.com. 
Well, Tom, I can't thank you enough. I really appreciate you taking your time. You know how busy you are. And I personally thank you for what you're doing for our profession and for the patients that need our care and service. My name is Dr. Kevin Coughlin. You've been listening to Ascent Dental Solutions with a focus on knowledge, education, development, and training. Again, a shout out to our sponsors, Henry Shine, Patterson Dental, and Vocal Dental Products. Without their support, these podcasts would be difficult. Dr. Warren, Tom, thank you so much. I appreciate it. And for our listeners, thanks for taking the time. I hope you got as much out of this as I did. Talk to you very soon. Kevin, thank you for the opportunity. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.